Thanks for staying with us, ladies and gentlemen, through our intro segment. We're now in our guest segment. This is Dave Hodges. And if you've just tuned in, you're listening to The Common Sense Show, and we are the show that is freeing America, one enslaved mind at a time. But we're going beyond the bounds of America. I mean, we're involved in a lot of different countries right now, and we do appreciate you sharing our work around the globe. Much appreciated. We have a terrific guest for you in this segment, Simon Chadwick, and we're going to be talking about achieving your maximum potential, becoming self-actualized. Boy, this is going to be a fun interview for me with my background in the field of psychology, and I can't wait to get to it. But before we go to that interview and this interview with Simon, we've got to talk about who keeps our lights on. And Noble Gold is one of those groups. And not only am I an advertiser for Noble Gold, I'm also a customer. I thought it would be foolish to keep all my money in the bank in these troubled times, and I was right. And they helped me reallocate a lot of my assets. And I would recommend that you look at this as well, too. They will not pressure you. It's the most low-pressure environment you'll ever see. And simply use my name, and you'll get the royal treatment. Give them a call at 877-646-5347. That's 877-646-5347. And people are asking me, Dave, is MPS still putting out storable food? Answer, yes. And boy, has there been a run on this around the country? I know many of the companies have shut down and not able to meet production quality, but we are. In fact, MPS has actually kept their prices the same as they had them two and a half months ago when they ran the special on four and two week orders. Yeah, that's it's incredible what they've been able to do. And I, I'm so impressed with them. Restaurant quality food, 25 year shelf life. How do you get yours? Go to preparewithdave.com. That's preparewithdave.com. Well, our guest, Simon Chadwick, is a graduate of Oxford University, studied things like philosophy, history. He's been a CEO. He's really kind of a renaissance man. He's done so many different things, and we could eat up half the interview just reading his bio. It's extremely impressive. But I'm sure his words will speak well and eloquently for himself. Simon, I want to thank you for joining us. And I think your message is really a needed one in these troubled times. Thank you very much, Dave, for inviting me on. I, I most appreciate it. Our pleasure. And uh, thank you for that uh, that wonderful introduction. Renaissance man, I'm going to remember that. <laughs> well, very, very, uh, well, like I said, uh, the background that you uh, have here on the Vitae is just incredible. Um, you've done so many different things. And you've been part of trade agreements. And, I mean, you've got your fingers in the pies of a lot of things I enjoy writing about. But let's focus on your recent interest, and in, in you've written a book on this um, with regard to self-actualization and so forth. Okay, Let's talk about what led you into the area that comprised the contents of your book, and, and how do you think it applies to the public as a whole? Well, thank you. The, the basis for my research and, and the book as a whole um, really came about when I started to think, uh, you know what is government there for in a in a democracy um, I've lived in various different types of societies some of them have been democratic some of them have been um, autocratic or even outright dictatorships and uh, you know when we look at ideolo- ideology political ideology in this country and around the world a lot of it is lost in its own sort of um, its, its own little bubble, and so I was really thinking, okay, so what is it all about? 
And I started to look at uh, Maslow's hierarchy again uh, and thinking to myself, okay, so you know, for an individual or for society as a whole, if we want to achieve our dreams, if we want to achieve self-actualization, what Maslow was saying, and I think it's still pertinent today, is that you need uh, security. You need the basic security of food to eat, a place to rest your head, a roof over your head. You also need security in terms of health and in terms of having a job and being able to take care of your family. And from there, if you have that security, then you can go on to um, essentially pursue uh, belonging in various different ways within society and eventually uh, self-actualization. And I started to think, you know, that sounds familiar. And I went back to the Declaration of Independence and to the Bill of Rights, and guess what? That's all there. It's for the first time ever in any real political document back in the 1700s, the Founding Fathers were actually laying out what Maslow, many, many centuries later, uh, put into his, his hierarchy. Life, liberty, the pursuit of happiness, and the, the, the freedoms inherent in the Bill of Rights. Freedom of assembly, freedom of religion, uh, freedom from search. Uh, so, essentially, I, this really interested me because, you know, I, if we want to get back to a state where individuals in society are uh, indeed functioning properly, then we have to get back to a state in which people feel secure and in which those freedoms really are guaranteed. And, you know, I think the, just to finish off on this, the one thing that really uh, interested me most of all was um, the Declaration of Independence, the pursuit of happiness. Um, that was a stunning uh, piece of political philosophy that nobody had ever really injected into a political conversation before. And if you think about it, that's really what we're trying to achieve individually. And if we're going to be a well-functioning society as, as, a, as a nation as well. Well, it's interesting, you're right, because when Thomas Jefferson said liberty and the pursuit of happiness, he really kind of caught the essential that to be all that you can be, you've got to have a, a good amount of freedom. Yes, I mean, it's, and, and liberty, um, when you get back down to its roots, comes from the uh, Latin word libertas, which means uh, freedom. But in, in a specific sense, um, it also meant freedom from fear. Right. And fear is what so many people have to deal with today um, in varying degrees. Uh, you know, people fear much more severely in, in autocratic societies than they do in democratic ones. But even here, you know, freedom of going bankrupt because of a health issue or freedom of losing your house or uh, fear of losing your house. Um, fear of, of perhaps losing your job. These are all fears that people live with, and uh, that is not libertas or liberty in its true sense. 
It's not. So in your book, um, what do you propose people do? Is this a bottom-up reform you're talking about where the people make grassroots changes or is this a top-down what the government has to do? I believe at the base it has to come from bottom-up. It has to be a movement in, in many ways. And I'll give you the main reason for that. Uh, And that is that politics in this country today is almost entirely ruled by money. Um, It's not something that started out that way, but, you know, the way in which we operate this republic today, uh, if you think about a representative from whichever party elected to Congress, Um, what is the first thing that they're told they have to do as soon as they get there? Go out and raise money. Go out and raise money. They're given targets. Um, And in doing so, money starts to rule what what politicians do, who who they report to, who they're trying to keep happy. Uh, And while that is the case, you cannot have government that is actually concerned about setting a framework of freedom uh, and and, and self-actualization. You don't don't have that framework. Yeah, it, it almost sounds like that approach is very libertarian. We want limited government, hands off the people, and don't you dare touch their rights. Does that kind of encapsulate what you just said? I call it democratic libertarianism. And the reason I do that is that uh, there are... We, we tend to think of politics uh, along a spectrum from left to right. Uh, but it's also the case that politics is on another spectrum, which is authoritarian to libertarian. And so far in the discourse in, in modern-day America, libertarianism has um, a rather right-wing bent. It's what I call the fantasy land, inasmuch as a lot of politicians, particularly from the right, will promise a libertarian future but they never deliver on it. Whereas if you think about a society in which government is responsible for setting up a framework of security and safety and freedom from fear and then gets out of the way, that's much more of a democratic libertarianism. And it is, it is possible other countries not many, but uh, a number, have shown that it is possible. So it is libertarian, but it is democratic libertarianism. Um, Okay, so you said some other countries have shown it's possible. Can you provide us with that example? Uh, Right now, probably the countries that come uh, closest to mind would be New Zealand, Holland, Denmark, Sweden. Uh, These are countries where, yeah, 
you, in some of them, you are paying you know a higher tax rate, but there is a contract involved, and that contract is that the government will set up the framework in which you can be uh, it, you can be free from fear, but then actually gives you the freedom to go out and be who you are. It, that there's no, there's, it's not an authoritarian society. Yeah, I need you to correct a maybe a wrong perception I have, but I thought the Europeans worked on more of a communitarian basis where you have rights, but only as long as they're in the common good and we can withdraw them when we want. Is that a misperception? I think the uh, it's like the Hippocratic Oath in many ways. It's do no harm. So the rights are there, but those rights do not include... <sighs> you being able uh, to to do harm to others as a result. So let me give you an, an example. Uh, you have the right to assemble with anybody you like. You have the right to, um, to be, uh, you know, to, to, to belong to a, a particular group. But if that group exists to wreak havoc with other groups in society, then that right is not a right. Because essentially, those groups are not free from the fear that the libertarian society would have you, you know, would, would guarantee. Mm -hmm. No, I, I, okay, I, I understand what you're saying. I guess, to me, the devil's in the details. Who gets to do the judging of what could be dangerous? See, there, that to me could form the basis of rights violation if that right to judge fell into the wrong hands. Yeah, and I think that's where actually the, um, the Founding Fathers uh, were uh, very clever in a way, um, in as much as they, uh, in setting up the separation of powers, and in particular uh, what is supposed to be an independent judiciary, um, they ensured that there was you know, no that no they thought they were ensuring that no one group could be the the you know the sole arbiters and judges uh, of that. In other countries, um, the independence of the judiciary is uh, you know those countries that really do follow this. The independence of the judiciary is sacrosanct. Um, and the democracy is extremely strong. So there is another book, actually, Dave, that I would thoroughly recommend to you and your listeners, which came out some time ago now called The Dictator's Handbook. Mm -hmm. And this is probably the most cynical book you'll ever read on politics. But essentially what that says is, look, any politician don't care whether they're Democrat or authoritarian or a dictator. Once they get into power, they want to remain in power. That's their main job. Uh, in doing so, you have to essentially pay off or keep happy the people who put you into power. True. Now, if you're a dictator, that's a very small number of people. And you'll probably do it using money, power, land, property, whatever. But if it is a fully functioning democracy, and by fully functioning, I mean 
participation is wide, people are involved, and yes, you know, there is community in doing so, then the, 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 the people in power have to respond by uh, giving to their supporters uh, what could be called public good, which is essentially, again, going back to the idea of, uh, of communal security. And that is what uh, societies like New Zealand, like the Scandinavians, not necessarily the continental Europeans, um, actually do. Can I have to ask this question in light of the times that we live in? Here in the United States, for example, we have people that are not allowed to exercise their Fifth Amendment right to property because they're being ordered to shut down their business because someone has judged their business to be non-essential. But the one next door to them could be left alone because it might be deemed to be essential. How much, in your paradigm and your approach in your book, how much does um, exigent or emergency circumstances play a role in violating people's freedoms? So... I think you have to uh, say to yourself, okay, um, in in this instance, for example, what are we trying to do? We're trying to keep people safe from um, a potentially deadly disease. Um, and in that sense, uh, if there are rights that are going to be abrogated or arrogated, um, then that is... Uh, that can can be necessary, but at the same time, it can't be done by one branch of government or one set of people being the sole arbiters. There has to be a an, you know basically an agreement uh, that yeah, for a certain amount of time these these rights will be uh, will be suspended, but that they will come fully back into force. Um, you know, I, I think if you go a fully libertarian route and you say, well, it's everybody's right to do what they want, to assemble as they want or to run the businesses that they want in, in whichever way in a situation like this, then you are essentially... Um, you're essentially going for what in the UK was called herd immunity. Mm -hmm. You're saying, well, I don't care who dies. You know, eventually the herd will become immune. Well, there are certain people in this society to whom, you know, for whom that creates an enormous amount of fear. And again, the whole idea behind the Constitution was to remove that fear. Okay, so when you say there has to be an agreement, and, it's, uh, and I don't mean to rephrase your words, but I think if I understood you correctly, the agreement should be made in and among people, not come from a single source. If you looked at the American government, for example, would you be talking about an agreement that would be reached, say, between the executive branch and the judicial branch? I think that's certainly part of it, and I think the judiciary should be keeping a very close eye on it, but it's also an agreement um, at local level, at state level. Um, we're seeing, for example, at the moment, uh, counties making decisions 
Uh, we're seeing neighborhoods making decisions. Uh, it's quite interesting to me, um, just in the neighborhood in, we li- in which we live, uh, that there, you know, there is robust discussion going on uh, about what should be and should not be um, the, the, you know, the rules governing the neighborhood. Uh, and it's quite interesting to see how people are coming together and saying, okay, this is how we're going to do it. Um, so it, it it goes down to the microscopic level, uh, but it's it's also you know a question of agreement between, as you say, executive and legislative branches. Unfortunately, right now, uh, the system I think is so broken that uh, you know that sort of agreement is difficult to get to. Although perhaps they've perhaps they're actually coming around and getting there now who knows I'm, that's probably Pollyanna-ish well, no I see I see a combination with what you're talking about here at the federal level it's almost strictly coming out of the executive branch except if they want stimulus money they got to go to Congress uh, I would mm-hmm. imagine the Supreme Court could be waiting in the wings to look for illegal things in their mind unconstitutional things but what you captured there was the concept of federalism that uh, you know the power to do a lot of these enforcements, like whose business stays open and who closes, and can you go out? What 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 are your restrictions? That's coming more at the local level now. So it uh, is, yeah. it is. That's right. Yeah, um, and I think uh, you know from my point of view, and particularly given that this is a federalist uh, republic, that's probably the way in which it will best work. Um, you know, that this is an extremely large, diverse uh, country. And, that, you know, the various different societies live in different ways, have different um, uh, risk profiles, if you like. Who better to know what to do in those circumstances than, than people locally? And I think, you know, I don't know what it's like. You're in Arizona, I think. Yes. I don't know what it's like down there right now. Uh, we used to live in Arizona for 18 years, um, but where we are here in North Carolina, uh, it's very interesting to see just how um, the the counties, in particular, are taking the um, the initiative uh, and doing so in a very um, uh, in, in the spirit of discussion with with their citizens, uh, there's not a top-down ruling of draconianism. It's there's much more discussion amongst people within counties as to what should be done, and then exactly. those counties are following through. Well, Simon, we're almost done with this segment, but I wanted to give you a chance to promote your book for the people: a citizens' manifesto to shaping one's nation's future and we, this is work we really need tell people how they can get a copy of your book thank you so uh, the book is available uh, on Amazon uh, as well as bn.com uh, you can also uh, read the first couple of chapters for free at my site simonchadwick.us and order from there um, I would love to uh, have conversations with your listeners after they've read the book, um, I love respectful conversation, which 
uh, I think you exemplify. Um, Thank you. And let's see if we uh, we can't make this um, a movement. Well, very good. Well, I, we really appreciate you joining us here on the Common Sense Show, and uh, good luck with your book sales. And we're going to air this interview, of course, across all of our platforms. So thanks so much for being with us. Thank you very much, Dave. Take care. And Ladies and gentlemen, safe. we will see you back here again next time. Thanks for joining us today here on the Common Sense Show.